come now to the scripture, which is your word to us, and your word throughout all the ages. Uh, it has always been true, and forever will be true. And so, Father, we pray that now you would enable us to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, that you might be glorified by having for yourself a people to worship you, to serve you, to bow to you, to love you. And that we might, as that people, be blessed. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 23. Joshua in chapter 23, please. I want to read <clears throat> this chapter. Joshua 23, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of those nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. 
Now, during this time of, of Advent, this Sunday and the next three, I want to uh, finish uh, the book of Joshua. Uh, and I want to do so using uh, what appears to as our theme, what appears to be the distinguishing uh, phrase, the distinguishing comment, the distinguishing sentence, the distinguishing exhortation that Joshua uses in chapter 24. I didn't read it, but many of you know it. He concludes there, in a sense, by saying, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I want us to be thinking about that during this whole Advent season. Uh, because, because we come to these last two chapters, chapters 23 and 24, and what we have are Joshua's farewell addresses to the people. He's old now. Uh, and, 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 and he's now coming to this point of, of a sense, giving them his, the climax of his, of his whole life with them. You may remember that the book of Joshua began with Joshua's calling. Uh, Moses has died. Uh, the people are entering this land. And, and Joshua is called to, to rule the people, to guide the people, to command the people, uh, to lead them. Uh, and this was no great surprise. He had been Moses' understudy for, for many, many years. And he'd already been called and the people had known that. But now that Moses was dead, he stepped into that position. And he was told to obey, to know uh, the word of God. That it was always to be on his mind, that he was to meditate. And it was always to be on his lips, that this, nothing else would really depart from his mouth other than the, the word of God. And that he was to live it out. He wasn't to depart from it, neither to the right nor to the left. But, but stay straight and hard uh, on the word of God. And that would bring his prosperity. That would bring him the success. That would materialize in all the promises that God had made to the people. And so he was to continue on in that way and to lead them uh, in that direction. And so he brought the people before God and he consecrated to them through circumcision and celebrating the Passover and covenant renewal and then through battle and even in discipline when they had sinned. And so he had led them and led them well according to the word of God. And now he comes as an old man, hundred, perhaps 110 years old, and he knows that he's going to die and he knows that this is it. And so he begins now to lay out this word to them, which will end with him saying to them, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And so what I want us to be thinking about during this Advent time is how does the coming of Christ lead us to conclude, as for me in my house, we'll serve the Lord. Why is it that that would be a logical connection? Why is it we would think of the coming of Christ and then say, yes, that we'll bow to him, that we'll worship him, that we'll love him and that we'll serve him. Well, here's how Joshua sets it up. He's old, and so he comes to them in this time of, of his, his farewell address. His concern is that they continue to live faithfully, that is, faithful to God, even after he's dead. He's been leading them to live faithful to God while he's alive. But his real concern now and probably what he had his eye on, even while he was alive, was that after he goes, that they would follow God, that they would be faithful to him. Isn't this the way that we raise our children? Not only the children in our homes, but the children in our church. If you're a second grade Sunday school teacher, if you're working in the nursery, or if you're a junior high boys Sunday school teacher, if you're a senior high girls Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, isn't your desire that they not only live faithful to God while you're teaching them, but even next year and the next year and the next year? 
And doesn't it thrill your soul when you meet these kids that you've had in the second grade, when they're in ninth grade and they're still in church and it still seems as if they're following after Christ? And doesn't it thrill your soul when they come back after having been in college and you find that they're involved in ministry in college and you find that they're still walking with Christ? And doesn't it thrill your soul when they get married and they marry a believer and they get married in the context of the life of the church and you can see that the center of their life is Christ? And doesn't it thrill your soul when they have children and they bring them to the church and offer them to God and receive God's sign of the covenant for their children? Doesn't it thrill your soul that as they grow through the course of their lives that they follow Christ? And isn't that how we raise our children? Aren't those the important kinds of things? I mean, sure, we try to make sure they can grow up and be socially acceptable and earn a living and all that, mostly so they won't move back in with us after they get out of college. But, um, but that isn't the thrust of our lives with our children. I don't know about you, but Karen and I know are weird, but, but there are times when we take our children aside especially if we're going off on a long trip and say things to them like, if we should die, I don't want you to be angry with God. And if we should die on this trip, I want you to love Him. I want you to trust Him. And I want you to follow Him. And I want you to continue to be faithful to Him. Because that's our heart's desire for our, for our children. In fact, if ever I have an opportunity to preach a last sermon, and I guess I will, uh, this, this, this might be it. I, and I don't, I don't say that flippantly. Uh, it, it might be. I, I don't know. Uh, but if ever I, I'm conscious of the fact that this might be my last sermon somewhere, uh, I hope that I'm able to, 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 to share Christ in a way that in a sense I always have. Because what's amazing about this passage in Joshua is that there's nothing new here at all. There isn't anything new at all. I think if Joshua would have been able to stand up and looked at the people and said, now what am I going to tell you? They would have been able to give him this speech and it would have ended up in some expression to the degree that as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Because this is what Joshua had been telling them all the while. And this is what he had been living all the while. You see, our deathbed speech and our last sermon should be the most easily spoken and the most unsurprising speech of our whole entire lives. In fact, our children, when we go through this little spiel with them from time to time, roll their eyes. Because they know exactly what we're going to say. Because we've said it before and I hope they've seen us live it. I hope if ever I do preach my last sermon, if somebody didn't hear it, they wouldn't wonder what I would have said. I hope they simply say, well, he took the next passage that was there and he then went straight to Christ with it. So you see, Joshua doesn't do anything here that's surprising to them at all. He simply tells them what he's been telling them. He simply describes how it is that he's been living. And that, you see, is his desire for them. And just as an aside, put that in your mind to tell that to your children how they should live after you die. Tell it to your Sunday school kids how they should live the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year. 
Because that's really what we're after. We're after this persistence. John Calvin put it like this. He says, For as the father of a family will not be considered sufficiently provident, that is, a sufficient provider, if he thinks of his children only to the end of his own life and doesn't extend his care further, studying as much as is in him lies to do them good, even when he is dead. And then he goes on to say, So good magistrates and rulers ought carefully to provide that well-arranged condition of affairs as they leave them. And so we're always looking at, at persistent faithfulness, ongoing faithfulness. And that's what Joshua is doing here. Now, the, the way that he gets there with them is that he, he, he tells them about what they've seen. He goes back and looks at, at the history, the most recent history. In chapter 24, we're going to look at what we call the covenantal history. He's going to, he's going to rehearse that history. But here, he's just giving them uh, the most recent history, what, uh, what, they have, what they've lived, so that they could remember God. Because you see, if we fail to remember God, then we're likely to turn away from him. If you read in the next book of the Old Testament in Judges, you'll find that the failure of the people was to remember what God had done. And when they failed to remember what God had done, then they went off in their own way. And so the prophets and the judges and everyone else brings us back to thinking who God is and what he has done. So that's what Joshua here is doing. He said, I want to rehearse with you what you know, what you've seen, what you've heard about God. All of these things are true. And so he says to them, remember that God has fought for you and you've seen him do this. Notice verse 3, which is key here. He says, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has who's fought for you. It's amazing. And the old theological language is this, that God condescends to us. Because what's amazing here is that God proves to us his trustworthiness, as if he had to. But all throughout the scripture, God is going over and over about who he is and then says, no, trust me, bow to me, submit to me, serve me, love me. You might remember before uh, God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel at Mount Sinai, he begins by saying this. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't just start by saying, listen, I'm God. You can't have any other gods before me. But he says, think about this for a minute with me. What have I just done? Haven't I just delivered you out of slavery? Haven't you seen me miraculously do all of these things for your benefit? Now, do you, why would you have any other gods? Why would you serve any other? Why would you bow to any other? Why would you want to go back to Egypt and live in that situation after I've delivered you out of all of that? And that's what Joshua is doing here. He says, think for a minute what God has done. He's fought for you. He took you out of Egypt, yes. And you went through the Red Sea, yes. And you went through the wilderness experience, yes. And then he brought you to the Jordan. And he opened the Jordan for you so you could walk through it and enter into this land. And what's he done? He's driven out all of these nations right before your very eyes. He has fought for you. Remember Jericho. Remember the Anakin, the big giants. Remember all of that. And he's fought for you and he's delivered you. And now he's saying, if you think about that, Here's how you're to live. Notice what he says then. 
And then verse 4, he says, Behold, I've allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, these nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've cut off already, uh, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess uh, their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So he's saying, listen, here's the deal. I've already conquered the land. I've divided it up. Each tribe has their own section. Now, when you get into your section, you're going to notice there's still some enemies there. There's still some nations there. What I want you to do is trust me. I'll drive them out too. But you need to serve me. You need to love me and all that. But, and I'll do it just like I've done before. And it's as if he's saying, listen, I've conquered this whole nation. I've, I've, I've driven out the big hard ones. I've, I've, I've done the Jericho thing. I've got the giants out. You've just got these little pockets of people. Now deal with it and I'll be with you. Trust me. And so he goes on then. Therefore, verse 6. Therefore, be very strong or be very careful to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, uh, neither to the right hand nor to the left. Very predictable thing for Joshua to say, right? He's been living this his whole life. He knows that his success is, is, is based upon that. It's based upon what he thinks about, and what he thinks about is the Word of God. He meditates on it as he's been commanded day and night. It informs his thoughts. He's been trained by the Word of God to think God's thoughts. He's been trained by the Word of God what is true and what is right. And then he says that it's not to depart from his mouth, meaning <clears throat> that he's to speak this, that, that what he knows to be true from the Scripture is to permeate his speech and how he talks and what he talks about and what he doesn't talk about and how he phrases and how he puts things and how he comments and how he understands and, and, and reflects back to others. The Word of God is to, to, to inform all of that. And then it's to dictate how he lives so he doesn't deviate from this, neither to the right or to the left. He just goes straight forward. So he says, that's how you're to live. Now, there's a sense in which, after what they've been through, he could rather sarcastically say, and why would you live any other way? I mean, come on. I mean, look at what God has done. He's taken you and defeated all these lands. He's given you exactly what he's promised. Now, why wouldn't you continue on in this way? It would be utter, utterly illogical to continue on in any other way. Why would you take it upon yourselves and not trust him? Why would you follow the gods of the other lands? Why wouldn't you just do this? So he says, this is how you're to live. And then he breaks it down like this. Verse 7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods. So when he's talking about mixing with them, he's really talking about marrying. He'll go on in the end of this chapter, you might remember, about marrying with them. And he's not saying that we shouldn't have some kind of interracial marriage. What he's saying is that we shouldn't have any interfaith marriage. What he's saying here is that you shouldn't mix marry, thus then worship, with anyone outside the faith. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now the context of that passage is worship. So we shouldn't worship together with unbelievers in that sense, because how could we? Right? That doesn't mean unbelievers can't join our worship. There are people in this congregation this morning who are unbelievers and know that and are here because they want to know about this Christianity thing, and that's perfectly well. But none of us should be in a worshiping context outside of worshiping God through Christ. 
And so that's what Joshua is saying. Don't mix with them in that way. Don't put yourself in positions where you find yourself having to worship other gods. And you would do that in the context of marriage if you married in. And then he says, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. He says, you shouldn't swear by these other gods. You know, it's interesting, and even in some courts, I don't know if in all courts still, but in some courts in the U.S., you know, you place your hand in the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's swearing by God. Now, Jesus said that really shouldn't be necessary because our yes should be yes and our no should be no. But when we swear by a God, what we're saying is this one by whom I'm swearing, this God is my judge. And he's the one who sets standards about truth. And I'm more afraid of him, this God, than I am of this court. If you weren't, you could swear by the court. If the court scared you enough into the truth. But you're saying, no, the court doesn't, but I'm going to appeal to a higher judge than the court. And I'm going to appeal to God. And he's the one who will judge me. He's the one who sets the standards. And therefore, if I'm swearing by him, you can rest assured that this is my life. And you may say, well, of course, we don't use that kind of language. But but don't we? When he says, don't swear by other gods, he's saying, don't trust in them to be your judge. Don't trust in them to set the standard. When I think of who God is, and you know this, I've used this little trilogy before. When I think about who God is, I think about he's the one who defines my life. God is the one we look to to define our life. Whatever defines your life, whatever tells you who you are, is God to you. Whatever, whoever directs my life, your life, is God to you. Whoever you look to, not only to say, who am I, but what am I to do? That's God to you. Whoever directs you is God to you. And then, in whatever you delight is God to you. Whatever thrills your soul, whatever makes you happy, that's the thing that satisfies at the moment, and that's, that's God to you. And whatever we swear by is God to us. Whatever we appeal to is our judge, the one who defines truth for us and directs us, the one that we obey. That's, and there's so many things that we swear by. You know, it's interesting. If, if you find a product that really helps you, a diet that's really good, you, you casually say, well, I swear by this, right? You know, this is, I, I swear by this diet. It'll, I swear by this exercise program. I swear by this philosophy. It's dangerous for us. Because often we swear by, for instance, convenience and comfort. We swear by that. That's life to us. Oh, whatever provides comfort for me, whatever provides convenience for me, that's really life. And I swear by it. Let me tell you. You want to live a good life, do all those things that make you comfortable and do all those things that are convenient because that's really life. You see, when we swear by convenience and comfort, it influences the way we spend our money. It influences the way we spend our time. It influences the decisions that we make. We can swear by self-preservation. Life is doing that which preserves my 
my life. So anything that preserves my life is, is my judge, and that's how I'm going to act, and that's how I'm going to live, and that's how I'm going to respond. We might swear by social standing. Uh, whatever enables me to look good in front of other people, that's, that's what I swear by. So we might lie in order to look good in front of other people. We might steal in order to have something that may look, enable us to look good in front of people. We may swear by the economy. We might swear by a particular political association. That's what will really give us life. We might swear by technology. We may swear by a particular medicine. This is the thing that will really help me. This is the really thing that is my life. And if I don't have this, I don't have life. And you see, it's very dangerous for us. We could swear by our baptism. We could swear by the fact that we tithe. That's the thing that judges me. And I do that well. And therefore, I must be okay. You might swear by our church affiliation. Oh, I go to grace. Therefore, I must be cool. (laughs) You are. (laughs) We're to swear by God, that is. To trust in him. And him alone. He is life. And there is no other way but by him. We're to swear by, we're to affirm, we're to trust in the way that he defines life for us. We're to swear by, trust in, affirm the way that he directs our life. We're to to swear by, delight in, be thrilled by how God defines our life and how he directs our life. That should be our joy, you see. All these other things are, are sort of derived from that. And so if, if the medicine works, you swear by God, yes, he's the one who's led me to this. He's the one who's helping me through this. If you're comfortable for the minute, you can swear by God that he's the one who provided that comfort. And that's a good thing and a helpful thing in the context of your life. And so Joshua is saying to these people, don't swear by these other gods. Don't trust in them. Don't look to these other gods to define you or direct you. Don't look to these other gods to to find your satisfaction and your fill and your delight. But look to God and look to him alone. And then he goes on to flesh that out. And he says, so don't swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But rather, he says, you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. The word cling is a very important one. You might remember it used in this expression. For a man shall leave his father and mother be united to his wife. That is to cleave is the old language to his wife. Or we could say in this translation to cling to his wife. There is a sense in which that you're to be stuck like glue to each other. And he says to cling to God and to God alone. It's a great little expression. You would know this probably in Second Samuel uh, about a man whose name I remember only because he's the son of a man named Dudu. I don't, I, that's always struck me as rather harsh when you hate your dad's name to be Dudu <laughs> for a number of ways. But his first name is Eliezer, and he and he fought, fought for Israel. He fought against the Philistines. And the scripture says of him that he fought all day long to the point of being weary, but his hand clung to his sword. And you get the sense that there's no way he's given up that sword. 
and, and his hand is, is glued to it. You can almost sense that over the course of the day, even though his body is weary, even though his hand is weary, that it's just formed around that sword so much all day, and his sweat and blood and everything else is sticking on his hand, and his hand is just formed around it, and there's no way you get the sense that when he returns to camp, they're going to have to peel his hand off that sword in order to get it away from him. And he's saying, that's how we're to cling to God. So he says, when you face these enemies, when you face these other nations, you need to cling to God, which means you swear by him, you're trusting in him and him alone. He's the one who defines you. He's the one who directs you. He's the one in, which you, in whom you'll find joy and no one and nothing else. And he's the one you'll serve and he's the one you'll bow to. He's the one in your mind. He's the one who's informing your thoughts. He's the one who's informing your speech. He's the one who's informing your actions. And so he's the one you see you're clinging to. And then Joshua goes on like this. And he says, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. Again, he's appealing to their reason and logic. He's saying, this is what God has done. Why would you cling to anyone else? Why would you serve anyone else? Why would you bow to anyone else? Why would you swear by anyone else? And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it's the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised saying, listen, this is what God has done. Weren't you amazed at Jericho? Weren't you amazed in these battles? You went into fight and you, you took your sword and you swung it and a bunch of people fell down? I mean, didn't that surprise you? Did you really go back and tell your wife, well, I was really great today? <laughs> or didn't you just bow to God and say, wow. So then he puts it like this, verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. See, all of a sudden he brings it full circle. And on the one hand, this surprises us because it's a command to love. You think, how can anybody command someone to love? I mean, isn't love an emotion? Isn't it a feeling? Doesn't it just rise up within us? And the answer is yes and no. On the one hand, it's a command because not to love God is the height of injustice. When we talk about loving one another unconditionally and God loving us unconditionally in certain senses and so forth, that's all well and good. But we needn't love God unconditionally because he's worthy of our love. And Joshua is saying, look at who he is and look at what he's done. How can you not love him? And the degree that we don't love him on the one hand is injustice. On the other hand, should tell us something about our hearts. You know, if somebody came to you and, and rescued you from certain death, wouldn't you feel affection towards them? If somebody came to you and helped you in your greatest time of need, and especially if they came to you and you knew them and you knew that they loved you and that's why they were doing this, wouldn't you worry about yourself if you didn't love them in return, if you felt no affection for them in return? And Joshua's saying, listen, I want to bring this down now. So that you understand that you're not simply to serve him in this some sort of objective kind of way. Go through the motions, down the list. But you're to love him. And then he goes through this rest and he says, but you know, if you turn away from him, then he'll turn away from you. And you won't receive these blessings. Joshua's point, look, 
This is who God is. This is, how he's, this is what he's done in your life. Now trust him and love him. Now let me bring this to Christ. For you see, we've been promised an inheritance too. The prophets of old promised inheritance. They promised a new earth. They promised the kingdom of God. And that has come. Not the new earth yet, but the kingdom of God has come. It's been inaugurated. It's come in its beginning stages. It is growing and moving. And one day will come in its fullness. But it has come, you see, to that degree in Jesus. He's the very one who brings the kingdom, the very rule of God in the lives of people. And he's the one who will bring all of that to consummation. And so the promises began in Genesis chapter 3 that one would come who would crush the head of this evil one, this serpent, Satan himself. And this one who will come then in the crushing of this evil one, though his heel will be bruised, he'll bring redemption. He'll bring reconciliation. He'll bring recovery of everything that was lost because of sin. And thus, we look forward to a day where there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more dying, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more poverty, there'll be no more injustice. But all will reflect God. And we learned that this one would come and he'd be a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. He'd be a king like David, but greater than David. The prophet Isaiah would come, he'd come as a child, a son who would be given to us. And he would be the very son of God. And his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the government that is the very rule of the kingdom of God would be upon his shoulders and it would know no end. Isaiah says he comes, he'll be born of a virgin from the very stock of Jesse. And he's the one who'll be the very Lamb of God upon whom the sins of us all will be put. And then he came. And we look back and we said, oh, God is faithful. Romans, please, chapter 8 and verse 32. He, that is God the Father, who did not spare his own son, that is Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's a verse to live on. That's precisely the way Joshua has been arguing, if you will, or describing, discussing with these people. He's been saying, look at what God has done. He's driven out all these big, strong nations. He's given you this inheritance, just like he promised. Now go serve him. Certainly you can trust him now, can't you? And the Apostle Paul comes with that same line of reasoning. He said, look, he who did not spare his own son, Prophet Isaiah says, that it was the Lord's will to crush him. We think about who killed Jesus. We can say, yes, it was our sin. True. We say, yes, it was those who had the physical hand in killing Jesus. True. But the one responsible for the death of Jesus was God the Father. 
He didn't spare him so that he could spare us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Saying, listen, if he's done that, if he's given you Christ, if he hasn't spared his own son but but crushed him for your sake, would you not trust him? To give you all things. What all things? Well, first, all things that he's promised. Won't you trust him to give you saving faith? Won't you trust him to give you persevering faith? When you're doubting, won't you look to him and trust him? That he's given Jesus for the salvation of sinners. Won't you trust him that he'll enable you to continue on believing? So trust him, look to him for that. Can't you believe him that he'll give you transforming faith? That he's given his son to die for you. Why won't you believe that he'll change your life and enable you to walk in obedience and godliness? Why don't you look to him for that? He's given Jesus for that very purpose. Why would he waste the blood of Christ? And why wouldn't he, after having given you that which is so precious to him, why wouldn't he give you this little thing in comparison? The transformation of your own life. Why wouldn't he give you the kingdom? That is, to enable you to enter in, to live under the gracious rule of God and to cause you to live in such a way to be protected by all your enemies and to even by faith overcome them. Why wouldn't you trust him for that? Why why won't you trust him to carry you all the way home that on the day of your death that you'll be in the very presence of God? Because you see, he's given you Jesus. He didn't spare him. But he gave him up. And then Romans 8.28 twists all things like this. It says, For God works all things together for good, for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. In other words, we can even say that all the things that come into our lives, however we might evaluate them on their face, as the good or bad, helpful or not, painful or happy, because all things to result in good. Because all things will work for our benefit and blessing if we trust Him, if we belong to Him. Because all things will conform us to the image of Christ. Thus, I think the call for us during this Advent season, just as we reflect upon the coming of Christ, is to realize that He has come. And that God is saying to us, listen, I gave him. I promised him. He's come. Now trust me. Walk with me. And we know that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples. Obviously, they knew of his birth. They had seen him in his life. At times, it seemed very clear that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at other times, they wondered who this one was who was among them. And Jesus, on that night, was about to make it very clear. He met with them for that Passover meal. And he took bread that was at the table and he broke it. That didn't surprise them. But what surprised them was that he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. 
which is given for you. And then he took the cup that was remaining and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance, in remembrance of me. And we're to remember Jesus. And we're to realize that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also along with him not give us all things? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that as we reflect upon Christ, the one promised, the one who's come, the one who's lived and died, rose again. And in living and dying and rising again, the one who defeated all of our enemies, the one who defeated sin and death by his very life of obedience, by his very death for our sins, by his resurrection, proving that there is life for all those who trust in him. Father, I pray as we think upon Jesus that you work in us a renewed strength, a renewed faith to continue to serve you, bow to you, trust you, swear by you. And I pray even still as Jesus is here, present, by his Spirit among us, at this table, that we might meet with him here and that he might feed us, bless us, strengthen us, encourage us, convince us that indeed you love us, Christ has died for us, and that he'll enable us to walk with him. Father, do all that in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table... Pray with me. <laughs> Father, here we are. We stand before you on this Sunday. It's your day. It's a day you've called us to come to worship. We've worshipped. We pray now, even as we leave, that you would be with us. That we would be a people. That would swear by you. That would bow to you. That would serve you. That would love you. Father, that your word would always be upon our minds. It would inform everything upon our lips. And it would be seen as we live our lives. That we're living in such a way that is pleasing to you. That we're living in such a way that is honoring to you. That we're living in such a way that follows the wisdom, the command, the precepts of your word. May that be true of us. That people even might take notice so that they would realize that our God is great. And our God is the one and true God. 
and that they too can enter into relationship with you, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we honor Christ even as we live. Father, life can be difficult for us, uh, even the very providences that you send to us, the circumstances of our lives can be, diff- can be difficult. We know that some are suffering from cancer. And we pray, God, that you would attend every treatment and bring healing. Some are suffering grief because of loss of those they love. And I pray that you would attend every moment, every thought, every tear and bring comfort and grace. Whether some are struggling in relationships with husbands, with wives, with parents, with children, I pray every conversation, Father, would be salted with the salt of grace and kindness and that you would grant confidence to each one that you will be there for them in the midst of that difficult and those difficult relationships. Some are struggling with employment and financial things and Father, we pray for them as well that you would attend every job and every job search and every moment in the store and every desire with your comfort and help. Whether there are those two who've been called in, in, as we would think, in some sort of special way um, to minister for Brad Supple in Asia, for Amy and Mike Wheatrich in Asia as well, for Seth and Minnie Duell here with the Navigators at KU, we pray for each of them that you would work in such a way that would provide for them all that they need, that they would have great confidence in Christ, that he has come, and that he is the Lord of the kingdom, and that, Father, that there is grace from him, and even as they speak, that, God, others will hear that word of grace and come to faith in Christ, and to grow in him. And for each of us, Father, you've called us, perhaps not in the same way that you've called these of whom, with whom, of whom we've just prayed, but, but uh, Father, you've called each of us, to minister in your name, so we pray that you would grant us grace and power, effectiveness, humility, kindness, respect, even as we share Christ. Thank you, God, for providing all that we need. Even today, we pray that you would receive our offering, that it would go and be blessed by you, that others would be helped by the gospel, helped by our church. And Father, we turn and give thanks to you. We are a grateful people. We humbly bow before you. Grant us grace to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. The response to our benediction this morning is this response that we use during this Advent season. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Uh, hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before His glorious presence and that with great joy to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.